0: Hi, and welcome to the August edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today, we're joined by Stephanie Valberg and Josh Ayman to discuss shivering and Purkinje cell distal axonopathy. And Denise Van Wilden will be talking about complications related to paranasal sinus cysts. Stephanie Valberg is the Marianne McPhail dressage chair in equine sports medicine at the College of Veterinary Medicine in Michigan State University. Josh Amon is a neurophysiologist working as Assistant Professor of Neurology at the University of Minnesota. Together they'll be discussing their recent article in EVJ titled, Abnormal Locomotor Muscle Recruitment Activity is Present in Horses with Shivering and Purkinje Cell Distal Axonopathy. We will alternate between Stephanie and Josh to ask questions in a manner that will make sense to the story of the paper. Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us today to tell us a bit about your recent study. Would you be able to start by telling us a little of the pathophysiology of shivering and what exactly triggers it?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I think the most important thing to recognize is that there are a lot of horses that can develop muscle fasciculations in their hind limbs or hold their hind limbs up and and tremor a little bit when you're picking out their feet. So in all of the studies that we've done, we've tried to narrow the the horses that we're calling uh, horses with shivering to horses that have both uh, hyperflexion of their hind limb when you pick pick their hind limb up, as well as uh, difficulty backing up with either hyperflexion or hyperextension of the leg. And that becomes a really important um, issue because there are a lot of horses that will only have problems picking up their hind limbs and they'll hold them up for an excessive period of time or hyperflex them and then put them down. But they're normal walking forward and walking backwards. And we call that standing hyperflexion. Um, So the horses that we were studying, we defined as having shivering because they had difficulty backing up with hyperflexion or hyperextension. And in that group of horses that we've studied, we have found a lesion in the cerebellum. So we believe um, that there's a chronic neurodegenerative disease in that specific subset of horses that are usually tall, five times more likely to be male uh, than female, um, and have difficulty backing up with hyperflexion or hyperextension. And it seems to be a very focal uh, cerebellar lesion in that deep cerebellar nuclei.
0: And what's hypothesized to be the cause of that cerebellar lesion? Well,
1: we don't really know. We think there's got to be um, some underlying genetic susceptibility, but it doesn't appear to be strictly a Mendelian trait where uh, we can find a specific mutation in all the horses with shivering that we don't find in others. There seems to be uh, that breed predilection just because we see it more commonly in tall breeds of horses, more often in warm blood horses and draft horses, um, and it's not recognized in a lot of light breed horses, like Arabian horses, for example, or, or shorter horses like ponies. There seems to be a, a, a strong impact of height because it's most commonly seen in horses that are 16 two or 16 three hands and taller. And then somehow there seems to be some uh, interplay with gender in that uh, it does occur in mares, but it's less common in mares than it is in gal- geldings and stallions. But what the specific basis for the neurodegeneration is we don't know at this time.
0: So what were your inclusion criteria for this study and what type of horses did you analyze?
1: So for this particular study we studied draft horses and we included Belgian draft horses, shires uh, and Clydesdales uh, and and they were uh, in large part geldings. So we were studying those horses because they were presented to us with evidence of shivers or shivering as defined by having difficulty backing up with either um, pretty pronounced hyperflexion or hyperextension. And in some of the horses we studied, they also had a more advanced uh, pathology in which They uh, had a few steps of forward hyperflexion. So the first few steps when they walked forward, they would also hyperflex their limbs. And then our control group were matched so that they were similar breeds of horses.
0: The horses were also assessed clinically using scoring systems for locomotor activity and during studying phases. What systems did you use for this? Well, we did
1: a, a full neurologic assessment of the horses and we didn't seem any abnormalities in terms of proprioceptive deficits They didn't have any intention tremors uh, when you were offering them feed, for example. Uh, We looked at their muscle mass uh, and looked at muscle symmetry. And then we did a a locomotor scoring system in which we watched the horses when they were standing still, when they were walking forward, when they were backing up, and then when they were trotting. And we um, kind of assessed them on a scale of zero to three, with zero being normal, one being intermittently abnormal, but mild, two being intermittently abnormal, but readily apparent, and three being clearly abnormal and consistently apparent. Um, And then we looked at them to see if they were reluctant to perform the procedure, the degree of coordination they showed in movement between the fore and hind limbs, the presence of either hyperextension or hyperflexion, and we scored each limb um, for all of those things
2: So Josh, thank you very much for joining us to talk
0: on the podcast today. Can you start off by telling us what the aims and objectives of this study were?
2: Sure. Um, this particular study that the, um, our, our specific aims were to um, were to characterize Um, more of a more of a electromyography biomechanical type um, um, perspective on the horses um, particularly the the shivering horses because um, previously um, uh, Dr. Valberg has has done studies on shivers and did some histology on them and so what we wanted to do this time was take the same the same group of, of of horses and try to characterize and correlate the um, if we can see the histology the the same um, the same pathology in these horses and then all, and then now look at the characteristics of the horses and try to really characterize them using EMG and um, to see really if there's um, what we suspected was um, these abnormal firing patterns. And so that was um, that was the main. Objective.
0: Okay, so could you tell us a little bit more in quite simplistic terms about your electromyography and the measurements you carried out on this population?
2: Sure. Uh, so, so actually, my my background is all human related work, and um, and so what we so what the goal was was to try to identify particular muscles that we thought were going to be abnormal or were going to be acting abnormal. And whether that uh, particularly when um, the clinical signs were present. And so, um, so when we met with, um, when we met with Dr. Valberg, she um, identified to me, here are the clinical signs uh, in these horses, particularly the when they're doing certain activities, so such as um, lifting the hoof up, um, backing the horse up, um, but not when they're walking forward. And so um, we identified these clinical uh, features and the um, the clinical assessment that she did on them, and so what we decided is okay, we're gonna we're gonna measure the muscle activity of uh, of, of particular muscles during these during this clinical assessment, and there's there was some previous work done on muscle activity, uh, uh, mostly mostly needle uh, EMG, trying to identify some aspect of of muscle firing patterns that were that were pathological or that were um, abnormal and uh, There wasn't a lot of success and so what we did was we decided okay Let's identify a few of the muscles that we know contribute to uh, The gait pattern during those clinical assessments where we see abnormal activity. Let's record those muscles and and see what's um, See what kind of activity is is happening? And, um, so we identified the particular muscles that we wanted to record from and, um, and then would, and assess those during the clinical, uh, during the clinical assessment.
0: So you assess them, as I understand, um, whilst they were moving forwards, backwards at stance, lifting up the leg yes. and scored them as well.
2: Yes. So um, so, so Dr. Valberg uh, scored the uh, the gave them the, cl- the clinical rating, and <clears throat> we used uh, we used a um, a, a semi wireless uh, EMG system. Wireless means that we just had a little um, we had leads and electrodes placed on the horse, uh, and we used surface surface uh, electrodes and placed the leads on there, and then they were just attached to a data logger, and we attached that um, attached that to the horse. And, and then um, recorded the muscle activity while she did her normal clinical assessment and that was <clears throat> modified a, a little bit. Um, so the basic activity we did was we had the horse back up uh, so many strides and then we had them walking uh, forward and then we had them trotting forward and then um, had them doing um, hind leg lifting.
0: Okay, and which muscles in particular were you looking at? Uh,
2: we looked at um, biceps femoris uh, vastus lateralis. Um, we looked at uh, extensor digitorum longus and um, uh, tensor fasciae latae is are the muscles that we looked at, um, and we identified those muscles, uh, particularly because we knew that those were um, those were muscles that were involved in um, particularly in backing up because we knew we knew that backing up showed a um, uh, showed issues with the horse in, in the clinical assessment, and so we first chose m- muscles that we knew were involved in that, um, and then um, and then uh, um, used some some counterpart muscles. So we used antagonistic muscle. We assessed um, uh, measured antagonistic muscles from from those as well, just okay. so that we could get a a, a good c- a cyclical pattern, walking backwards and forwards.
0: Okay, and what were the most significant findings through your electromography analysis? Uh,
2: the, the the most significant findings were um, were during as we suspected during during walking backwards, and what we saw was that um, the the muscles for walking backwards, particularly the uh, the biceps femoris, was just um, just, uh, on, I mean, it was on the entire time. So there was to the point where there was, um, uh, there was complete loss of, of, um, any cyclical patterns. There was, you couldn't identify, um, a cyclical, a cyclical gait pattern in the muscle. So instead of just, um, um as the control horses were, were backing up and, and actually control horses used that muscle very little, they Their backing up um, or their gait going backwards was almost um, kind of lackadaisical where they just almost kind of dragged their their feet or scooted their feet, um, whereas uh, the shivering horses did um, almost something completely opposite. They were, they were um, hyperflexing their, their legs when they were backing up, and, um, and even though they were hyperflexing their legs, picking their legs up, putting it down, picking it up, putting it down, even even in a gait pattern, a biomechanical gait pattern like that, you still couldn't see the um, the cyclical pattern of the muscle firing. So, you know, extending the hip um, backwards as they're walking backwards, it just simply was on the entire time.
0: Okay, so at part of the stride cycle, it was working against the activity, basically.
2: Yes, exactly. Okay. And... Um, uh what was what was interesting was not and we and we kind of suspected that that was the case just based off of the 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 clinical assessment um but what was interesting was that not only did we see not only did we see that during walking backwards um and and again that was um it was in all the all the muscles we, we examined, so the biases femoris, the vastus lateralis, the tensor fasciae latae, the extensor, digitor, extensor digitorum longus, they were all firing uh, extensively and and working against each other is 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 how you can term that. I mean, they were um, they were fighting against each other and and just constantly being on like that. But we also saw the same um, increase in amplitude. When, when the horse was walking forward as well. So even though you couldn't see clinically, they were, they were never identified really as having any problems walking forward, in the EMG recordings you could clearly see that the muscle was, um, was not firing properly as well. So it was still difficult to identify the, the cyclical pattern of, of agonist antagonistic muscles firing um, to, ha- to have a smooth gait pattern. And when you watched the horse, the horse looked relatively normal, walking forward, but um, in the EMG um, recordings, you could see that that it was clearly was not.
0: So did the EMG highlight any other abnormalities with the other muscles you were looking at?
2: Uh, yeah, so the walking backwards, the the amplitudes were increased um, so much so that you really couldn't identify any gait patterns walking f- when the when the the horse was walking forward, um, in the in the tensor fascia even though the amplitudes were increased, you could still somewhat try to identify um, this this um, this cyclical pattern, except for um, the vastus lateralis, it was really I mean it was just it was kind of a solid on, even walking forward. Okay. So, you, so the vastus was—it was impossible to identify on-off periods um, in that particular muscle uh, when the when the horse trotted. Um, just like the control horses, of course, the amplitudes of the EMGs go up, but you could still identify uh, succinct on and off times. But um, in the shivers horses, when the horse trotted, then they really were—I mean, the amplitudes were increasing so much that um, the um, identifying an on and off period in. And the muscle activity was was nearly impossible. So you know it's it's almost like it's almost like um there was so much noise and so much activity going on because there was so many there the muscles were firing uh, so often that that it's possible there is a cyclical pattern in there. It just was corrupt with so much other activity that you couldn't you couldn't identify it
0: so with your background in human neurology, does the proposed cerebellar pathology for shivering highlight any interesting findings?
2: Uh, it does because um, my work is is in um, is in neurological movement disorders, so Parkinson's disease, dystonia, and um, essential tremor. Um, what's interesting is that the cerebellum has been identified in uh, in dystonia and actually in um, essential tremor. And um, not as much in Parkinson's, but um, I think it's because maybe it, we just haven't it hasn't made its way there yet. Um, it, most of the time, particularly in in Parkinson's and dystonia, the the focuses have been on the basic anglia. But if you look at the literature, there's there's um, there's evidence that there's there's dysfunction going on in the cerebellum. And previously it was thought that well the basic, the, the dysfunction in the basic ganglia is kind of driving that um, those issues in the cerebellum, and that's starting to change a little bit where maybe it's maybe that's not the case it's either independent or it's maybe even reversed from that that the cerebellum is uh, is driving some of the issues, and um, so the interesting thing is that when I first when I first uh, saw the the, the horses just just looking at just just eyeballing them and watching them um, do the clinical assessment what stood out to me was that they they in in how i would define it in humans anyway and i I know that um, dr valberg and and in the equine field they define um they define it a little bit differently but what stood out to me was that i saw uh features of both uh dystonic activity and some ataxic activity and and what I noticed there was that the, the – and, um, and I also saw this in some of the pictures that I was taking of them when I was um, – I would take pictures of the setup, um, how we had the EMGs placed, is that the horse's hind legs were standing far apart, which, which I came to find out is not normal. So typically normal for the horses is that their legs are, are um, relatively uh, um, vertical to the ground, and these horses, their hind legs were kind of spread apart. And humans uh, that have um, ataxia will do this. They'll spread their their legs far apart to kind of maintain their balance. Um, So I noticed that initially. And the other thing I noticed was um, the shivering had this um, periodic muscle contraction that was um, underlying, was constant, but what clinically was um, periodic in nature in that it would kind of come and go. And that's um, that's similar to dystonic activity that, that, that we see in dystonia patients in humans, where the muscle activity will kind of come and go. And, um, clinically you'll see the patient, um, whether it's torticollis in their neck or in their arm, the, the muscles will contract and, and they'll kind of contort and then they'll go back to normal position and then they'll kind of contract and they'll kind of go back and forth like this. And that's what I was seeing it in these, uh, in the horses. And if you look in the literature, you'll, you'll notice that there's, there's documentation of not only in uh, cats and mice, but also in humans, that there's been um, studies that have shown lesions in the cerebellum, and the patient exhibits some form of dystonia. Now, what that means is is not entirely known because there's so many different types of dystonia that they just kind of umbrella all the terms together. And I think that they're manifesting clinically similar to each other, yet um, the pathology is not exactly the same. You know, they have, of course, related to each other somehow. But I think what's driving them is, um, you know, it's, it's a circuit issue. And whether the circuit issue is stemming from the basic anglia or the, dis- or the cerebellum, um, I think there's probably a multitude of things going on that can all manifest as you know, quote unquote dystonia. And that's kind of what I saw on the horses is that they had these similar features to it. So um, that's really what interested me is because um, right now, a lot of the human work is focused on the basic anglia. And now there's starting to be some trickle of evidence that um, it's it's not just the basic anglia, there's more of a circuitry involved, which includes the cerebellum.
0: Okay, well thank you very much for giving us a different angle on this study, Um, it's fascinating.
2: Yeah, appreciate it.
0: So once the horses were euthanized, um, what did you investigate? So uh,
1: because in a previous study uh, we had gone through in worm bloods and looked at the entire nervous system from the spinal cord through um, the brain stems, cerebrum, and other areas of the brain, and found the only lesion in this deep cerebellar nuclei. In this particular case, we just looked at the deep cerebellar nuclei in all but one of the horses that because one of them wasn't euthanized, but the rest of the horses that we uh, had were donated to us and ended up being euthanized because of the degree of shivers that they showed. And we found the same, Uh, lesion in the distal axons of the Purkinje cells in the deep cerebellar nuclei as we had seen in the previous study when we looked at warm blood horses with shivers. Overall, what has this study brought to light? Well, I think the really important thing with this study is we've never um, really understood why it is that horses with shivers stand and hyperflex their limbs or have difficulty backing up because they, they look like they're resisting backing up. And what we were able to do with the study is to link a lesion in the Purkinje cells and the distal axons of those Purkinje cells in the cerebellum, which have an inhibitory influence and particularly on locomotion. And we were able to link that lesion with the fact that what happens with shivers horses is when you ask them to back up, they can't do it many times because both the flexor and extensor muscles all fire at the same time and they lack the ability to have a normal pattern of muscle recruitment. They just all fire at once. There's a lack of inhibition, it seems. And so they can't either flex or extend the limb. So they have both anxiety, I think, because they can't do it even though they want to, and they have some pain involved because it's almost like a cramp and that everything is firing all at the same time. So I I think that was a useful thing to understand that it's not a behavioral problem, that they can't move because all of those muscles are firing off at the same time. And then the other thing I found really interesting in the study is even though on a clinical locomotor score, I thought they looked like they were moving forward normally, we do see a subtle pattern of change in the muscle fiber recruitment patterns so that the precise timing of muscles, uh, flexors and extensors being on, off, on, off, on, off in normal horses wasn't there in our more severely affected horses. And so they didn't have that same rhythmic pattern of firing. It didn't seem to clinically affect them, but I wonder if subclinically, um, that that does affect them. So even though their forward gates looked normal, when they were more severe, they didn't have the same entrained pattern of of muscle recruitment that we saw in healthy horses.
0: How do you plan on investigating this further?
1: Boy, it's really tough. You know, my muscle research has been easy because we can take muscle biopsies. It's really tough to do uh, biopsies of the brain in horses. And so um, we are kind of reevaluating where we're at and how we might be able to take this forward. I'd like to be able to develop something we could do for the horses that you know doesn't require evaluating their brain but yet would be a useful clinical diagnostic tool.
0: Okay, Stephanie, thank you for sharing this really fascinating work with us. You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Denis Van Wilden is Associate Professor of Equine Veterinary Surgery at the School of Veterinary Science in the University of Sydney. Denis will be discussing his recent paper titled Paranasal Sinus Cysts in the Horse, Complications Related to Their Presence and Surgical Treatment in 37 Cases. Denny, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast today, uh, all the way from Sydney. Would you be able to give us a start, um, just an overview of paranasal sinus cysts in the horse?
3: For sure, uh, that'd be my pleasure to actually explain to you a little bit about the study and then the sinusist in particular. Um, Sinusist is actually something quite common, or at least it's something we should quite commonly think of as part of the differential diagnostic list of horses that are presented to us with a... Unilateral mucopurulent nasal discharge um, as it, it is totally part of the sinusitis complex. Um, if we look at sinusitis in general, uh, we, we can divide sinusitis um, as primary or secondary in, in origin uh, and in the, in the latter, so in what we call uh, the secondary cases of sinusitis there is some kind of Uh, underlying cause that will maintain or that keeps the symptoms of sinusitis alive and so uh, the nasal discharge and and paranasal sinus cysts uh, are or have been reported to be the second most frequent cause of that secondary sinusitis after uh, secondary sinusitis of dental origin so that's uh, uh, that's roughly how you know how we can picture paranasal sinus cysts. Um, clinically those horses tend to be presented to us with deformation of the face or epiphora, exophthalmus, uh, and or nasal discharge and we would also see them uh, to uh, affect two distinct age groups. So in, in one group of animals the, the clinical Presentation is there as pre wheelings or young adults, uh, and then there seems to be a gap in the presentation until horses uh, that are over 10 12 years of age. So that's, uh, uh, that's a little bit the, the age groups that are affected with paranasal sinus cysts. Um, and radiographically, when you examine these horses, uh, you get uh, a quite Clear typical image where you find a homogeneous, well-defined soft tissue density uh, that's located in the frontal or maxillary sinus region, uh, which would be then very, very highly suggestive of paranasal sinuses. So, um, the the real final diagnosis for the for the cyst has to be made. Uh, with histology um, yet once you if, if you've done some of those surgeries you will you will also figure out that once you open the sinus and you have this cyst lining that you perforate and there's this viscous, viscous translucent and odorless fluid coming out that uh, you're uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty pathognomic so uh, your your histology is just there to confirm the thing but once you've that you know what you'll be dealing with um,
0: so what exactly were you aiming to look at in this study?
3: Well, the the thing is that from a clinical perspective, what myself and other uh, other clinicians that I, that I met and were interested in this problem uh, saw is that with the expansive nature of this cyst, um, we get a lot of, of destruction of surrounding bone and, and structures. And so the cyst probably starts pretty small because we we don't really have an etiological factor for it. We don't really know exactly where it's coming from. There's some hypothesis about it, but um, that that had nothing to do with this this study anyway. But um, we saw that the cyst kind of grows and then bone, dental tissues and, and so on get affected uh, aside from the original sinus cyst, and we wanted to investigate in the population of horses with sinus cysts what were the associated morbidities uh, and then also um, describe the outcomes after surgical removal of, of sinus cysts in a, in a group of horses.
0: So what were your inclusion criteria and what data did you analyse?
3: Well, obviously, we restricted ourselves to horses, uh, horses that were presented in in six different European equine hospitals uh, where we searched for animals that had been diagnosed with a a parasympathous nasal cyst for which we had complete clinical records and imaging data available and uh, surgical removal and outcome data. So uh, we really wanted to have a mass complete That as clinical data set as possible, Um, and we checked clinical signs at presentation, including uh, duration of the clinical signs, data on medical imaging workup, including uh, CT imaging and upper airway endoscopy when when that was available. I think that was the only clinical variable that we had in, in some horses. We had CT in others we didn't have um, and checked which which sinus was involved uh, what were the bony or other structures or dental structures that uh, were associated to the sinus cysts in, in the sense that uh, what peripheral damage the expansion and compression had created to the infraorbital canals, the nasal Lacrimal duct, or uh, nasal septum, and nasal passages, Uh, all all that was recorded, and then eventually uh, we looked at the 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 surgical data. What was the surgical approach uh, for the removal of the cyst? What was the recovery? Uh, after removal and eventually the uh, complication and, and final outcome, whether those horses returned or not to, uh, to their previous activity with or without recurrence of the, uh, of the problem.
0: What signalment and history did these horses mainly present with?
3: Well, i I'll, I'll, I'll say first that um, out of that res- retrospective uh, clinical study, we were able to, to gather data on 37 horses, right? So, um, and those 37 horses, most of them were warm bloods, 19 of them to be precise. Uh, there were about five turbrets and then there was a, a, a gathering of, of ponies, Arabians, and then some Icelandic horses as well uh, in uh, in that group. And um there were half half males half uh, mares in in the in the group and horses aged from 6 months to 24 years with a, a median of 14 years of age uh, so that's that's a little bit the uh, uh, the distribution or or the signalment of the population that, that we are looking at um, and then, when it comes to to the history or to the clinical uh, to the clinical signs of these horses. Um, Thirty of them presented with nasal discharge, which which is like I, I said to you initially about paranasal cysts, uh, sinus cysts. That uh, it has to be part of the workup of sinusitis. But obviously, seven horses in the group we investigated had no signs of, of nasal discharge. Right. So in essence, you you couldn't really categorize them as horses having sinusitis. Um, but the ones that didn't have have uh, nasal discharge and a part of those that had nasal discharge also had uh, facial swelling which occurred in, in 21 uh, of the 37 cases. Uh, 16 had signs of epiphora. Huh? Uh, 3 had exophthalmos and 5 were presented for head shaking um, and 2 for poor performance. So there's a bit of a variety uh, of signs that are all kind of directed to something that happens uh, in the in the facial region anyway, um, and the duration of signs ranged from about one week to 36 months uh, duration uh, before presentation to uh, to the referral center, um, and what was what was. To see as well when we looked at, at these data, we saw that horses aged ten or more had a far longer duration of clinical signs than those presented um, under the age of ten, where you know owners tend to uh, seek uh, advice or uh, horses were referred to as much uh, much uh, further. And then before referral presentation as well, um, most of those horses are pretty old. All of those horses had received treatments like mucolytics or several antibiotic regimens in combination with or without mucolytics and anti-inflammatories uh, but um, none of that had been uh, successful at resolving the, uh, the clinical signs uh, four of the horses also had had a, a sinus lavage performed uh, through a simple trefination um, but that, that had not led to resolution. Of the, of the problem.
0: So when you're looking at diagnostic procedures done, and what were the main radiological findings associated with these sinus cysts?
3: Um, the, the main factor in sinus cysts, I mean, if you if, if you look, obviously those that went through CT had a much more complete uh, overview, but on, on plain radiographic findings, the, the best diagnosis was made on a straight uh, lateral radiograph where you uh, of the head and the sinus, more particularly, where you see a generally discrete, partially circumscribed mass, uh, which was the case in, in 17 horses, or a poorly marginated diffuse soft tissue mass uh, in in another uh, 10 horses so it's it's really about uh, looking at soft tissue density within the contours of the sinus region because although we we would classified these in the sinusitis groups, um, the so-called typical fluid lines associated with uh, sinusitis were only present in two of the 37 cases. So uh, looking for f- fluid lines is really not what you're looking for in, in those cases. You're really looking uh, to find this, this soft tissue diffuse, uh, marginated soft tissue uh, density in the sinus. And then what you can then add on is that on the dorsal ventral projection, what was very obvious in 22 cases that we had was that there was a nasal septum deviation uh, towards the uh, contralateral side of the affected sinus, so those those are mainly uh, the, the the findings uh, of of radiology. Um, but to be noted on that, if we then analyze uh, in the in the in the bigger scheme of, of the of the study where we look at comorbidities, uh, in sixty percent of the cases affected with the sinus cyst, there was such a expansion of the mass that the sinus um, was not identified, the sinus as such, so the differentiation between the lining of the frontal or the maxillary sinuses was not definable or identifiable anymore in 60% of the cases uh, due to distorted anatomy. So the the sinus basically formed one large cavity uh, on on radiographs.
0: And how did you find the Surrounding
3: structures were affected. Well, the, the, the surrounding structures were affected in in the sense that due to the due to the pressure, uh, you could have uh, compression on the. Uh, Um, infraorbital canal, uh, distortion of the nasolacrimal ducts, uh, all all actually um, anatomical signs that could then further relate to the clinical signs that the horses were presenting like epiphora or head shaking or so on. Um, Some horses also had affection of the dental apicus, apices, apices, uh, where compression uh, occurred in on the dental roots, that further led to uh, to dental problems later on in, in these uh, in these cases. So, so which, pretty pretty nasty stuff.
0: <laughs> which surgical approaches were favoured to remove these cysts?
3: um all these horses had frontal nasal flaps made in in some kind of form uh two had this uh, large diameter trephonation uh which 45 millimeter uh, frontal trephonation performed to to expose and remove the cyst Uh, But the 35 others had a standing frontal nasal approach uh, using either an oscillating saw or uh, a hammer and chisel. Only two with a hammer and chisel, in fact, to uh, create an approach to to the sinus and to, to remove that. And one thing that was noted during the surgeries was that many of the cases had very thin bone. Um, and uh, that uh, eight of them had a quite surgically annoying uh, complication in the sense that the infraorbital can, the infraorbital nerve, sorry, uh, was totally denuded of his bony uh, surrounding. And so uh, during manipulation or during extirpation of the cyst, um, there was some explosive defensive head movements occurring uh, in these eight cases because of manipulation of the uh, directly exposed infra-orbital nerve. So that's that's something that's quite annoying when you do these surgeries uh, standing. Um, on the other hand, during the surgeries, um, uh, two. Two thirds of the cases had had really minimal bleeding during extirpation, and it, it was only nine horses that we had to create a sinus nasal fistula uh, to pass a stockinette in order to control hemorrhage. So um, the cysts are generally very nicely delined and and can be peeled off the sides of the of the sinus wall pretty easily without really creating excessive hemorrhage. So, uh, the technique is rather easy to do.
0: So, you mentioned the expansion of the cyst can cause secondary effects on the surrounding structures, dental apices, the infraorbital canal. What kind of secondary clinical signs did you see um, associated with this?
3: Well, yeah, that was that was in fact the, the, the real purpose of the studies was was first to see you know what what is there beside the sinus cysts and um, infraorbital canal compression and distortion uh, was clinically seen on radiographs or on imaging technique and during surgical exposure in, in nearly all cases. Uh, how they relate to um, the clinical expression of the problem, like head shaking and so on, uh, is is to be you know, to be seen. I, it's it's difficult to say, but it it can be. Um, The uh, lacrimal canal compression and and distortion was seen in 62% of cases with with structural uh, changes that can be related to the occurrence of, of epiphora. Um, and then in, in 30% of the horses, we also found uh, damage to dental tissue due to compression of the dental apices by, uh, by the cysts. And to, to be noted in that out of the data from the analysis of the clinical data, seems that uh, most of these comorbidities occurred in cases older than 10 years of age. Um, with the duration of the clinical signs also being the longest. So if you remember in the history and presentation of the cases, uh, horses that were over uh, 10 years old uh, generally were presented with a duration of clinical signs that was much longer, and those then also had uh, much more comorbidities associated to the presence of the cysts.
0: And exposed nerves, what kind of secondary signs did you um, experience when the Infraorbital Canal was deteriorated?
3: Well, clinical signs were, I mean, we didn't, We there were more horses with uh, exposure of the nerves in that surgery, we saw 12 of them, but there were only five horses that presented with head shaking, so you couldn't really say that because the nerve is exposed that you will have uh, head shaking per se or vice versa, um, like I said before, during the surgery, one of the tricky things was that in those horses with exposed uh, nerves or where the canal was really disrupted um, when you start debriding it can be very difficult to identify the nerve and before you know it you're playing guitar with that nerve inside the sinus and the horse really explodes and has very very heavy defensive head movement so um, that makes the surgery a little bit tricky. Uh, personally I tend to avoid uh, doing maxillary nerve blocks uh, in those horses when I do surgery on them because I am afraid, uh, whereas the defensive head movement is dangerous, uh, it, it's also a sign for you um, that you are hitting, that you're pediculating and uh, nerve and so desensitizing the nerve I I tend to always be afraid uh doing that and then ending up with ripping out the nerve um if I'm not careful because it's being anesthetized
0: so did clinical signs resolve post-surgery um or continue the head shaking
3: no well they're they're um sorry um, if, if I look at if, if I look in, in general one of the horses were made with a low grade head shaking right so one of those five uh, didn't have total remission of the of the clinical signs but um, it then you know to see what, uh, what you're looking at are we looking at remission of the cyst or uh, are we looking at uh, returning to original activity or, or those things so if, if we look in general, we can say that we had a, a successful outcome or a full remission of the sinus cyst uh, and clinical signs obtained in 80% of cases, uh, and that with a follow-up from six months to, uh, to 10 years after, after surgery. Um, and in four horses, unfortunately, there was persistent clinical signs, not related to the reoccurrence of the cyst or so on but really associated to the comorbidities like unresolving epiphora due to distortion of the nasolacrimal signs, Uh, remaining low-grade head shaking remains to be seen if that is due to uh, still an ongoing sinus problem or uh, to trauma to the infraorbital nerve or to a totally other reason, which is very difficult to say. Um, And one horse had dental secular uh and and ended up with a distorted tube that had to be removed because it was it was causing problems. Um and it was only in two horses actually that we had recurrence of the uh of the cyst, uh, respectively, at uh, at eight and sixteen months uh, post surgery. So, when it really comes to recurrence of cyst, the, 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 it's, it's pretty rare. Uh, when it comes to remaining with uh, initial clinical signs from the comorbidities, it is really uh, likely that that uh, that that can happen.
0: Okay. Um. What's your overall take-home message for clinicians?
3: Um, what I would say is that, first of all, you know, we, we, when we are dealing with horses that have a sinusitis, um, that we have to think that paranasal sinus cysts are... Uh, are a possibility. They should be. They should be on our list of um, differential diagnostic lists, uh, particularly when the signs of nasal discharge are accompanied with epiphora or uh, facial distortion, um, and that uh, considering those masses can create adjacent damage. Uh, early recognition of these cysts is, is pretty crucial because the longer uh, the diagnosis is. the more chance we have uh, to get pressure atrophy of of osseous or uh, dental structures or compression of nerves, uh, which can dramatically uh, affect the prognosis. But on the other hand, if we are within a reasonable time frame, uh, the surgical extirpation of these masses is relatively straightforward and uh, carries a good prognosis for return to uh, the horse's original activity with uh, with minimal complications so i think the 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 key like for many things is to uh, get an early diagnosis
0: denny thank you once again for joining us on the podcast
3: you're very welcome
0: thanks again for listening and please join us in two months time for our next edition